Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, it's been a while. First case back is an inspirational story about a family never giving up. It's marked episode 186, but 185 will be coming soon. Anyway, it's about a family trying every avenue for 26 years to be heard in order to overturn an investigation outcome that was clearly incorrect. This included doing their own research and hiring their own experts. It's about finally having their son's death looked into thoroughly as it should have been all those years before. Jeffrey Brooks was found dead in his ute on March the 13th, 1996, at the age of 24. The first coronial inquest in 1998 was held into the death with several theories put forward, including an accident, suicide or murder. But the coroner returned an open finding, ruling out Suicide. Tonight's script has been written and researched for me by one of our True Crime Island administrators who has been following this case. Our sources for the podcast are the Coroner's Court of Queensland's Findings of Inquest 2023, ABC News, News.com, BlueMountainsGazette.com.au, TheHeraldSun.com.au, the Facebook page, Jeffrey Brooks time for justice. So let's get into it. You may already know about this case, but in recent months there have been major and positive developments. Jeffrey Brooks was born September 1st, 1971 and was brought up in a loving home, the eldest of four children born to Lawrence and Wendy Brooks. His family lived just outside Lismore and grew up with strong family and Christian values sharing many happy family memories, including fishing and holidays. The area would have been idyllic for kids to grow up in. Lawrence, also known as Laurie, had a strong bond with Geoffrey as he passed down his knowledge and expertise in firearms, just as his father had to him. He always made sure that his children understood the safety aspects around using a firearm, and Geoffrey soon showed that from an early age, he was an excellent shot. He'd never had any safety issues with firearms or maintaining them. The family attended and were involved with the Alstonville Baptist Church. It was through the church youth group that Jeffrey eventually met Nicole, who would later become his wife in February of 1993. During his early marriage, he attended university and completed an applied science in coastal management going on to do an honours degree majoring in biology and coastal management. While attending uni, he was introduced to one of the directors of the Beanley Crayfish Farm in Queensland, Australia, by his brother David. The farm at this stage was owned by Mr Milham and Mr Pick. The owners, who were from New South Wales, were baffled as to why, after investing almost half a million dollars over five years, that the business was still failing and showing no trend of picking up. The owners offered him the opportunity of a six-month engagement where he would complete a thesis. Now, this was a win-win situation 
as Jeffrey was being paid and had an excellent thesis subject. The owners wanted to see if he could turn the farm's profits around. He had the skills and the brains. Plus, it was a bit of a challenge. The sweetener was that if he could make a going business out of the farm and turn the tide, they would keep him on. If not, the farm would be closed down. It was initially thought that the problem was primarily caused by birds such as cormorants and other birds feeding on the livestock that were housed in the 41 Olympic-sized ponds. How wrong this theory was. This is not the danger he should have been concerned about and he had no idea what he was walking into. But he's young. He's keen to prove he can do it. So he heads off to the farm on his own. His wife, Nicole, didn't go with him. Now, initially, Jeffrey lived on a caravan on the park for the six-month stint. In Australia, we love our seafood and crayfish are sought after. They're known by various names like lobster, red claw or crayfish, and can be found on restaurant menus everywhere. Now, crayfish are on the high end of the seafood scale and are considered a delicacy. They are very sought after, and there should have been no problem selling the stock from the crayfish farm. The partner's original business plan was to sell their crayfish to places like the Sheraton and the Marriott, all these high-end hotels, along with other prestige hotels on the Gold Coast. So, to set the scene on site at the farm, the owners, they weren't living on site. Now, they lived in New South Wales. Before Jeffrey started, though, they had three full-time staff who had previous experience in aquaculture. The staff on the farm were as follows. There was Hans Geiger. He was the manager. Regine Healerup. That was the wife of Hans. Graham Lloyd, a farmhand. Paul Stewart, a sales manager. He didn't live on site. Uh, of course, there was Jeffrey and other casual workers who were also housed off-site. Now, the managers had use of the manager's residence, but there is no mention of what accommodation Graham Lloyd had. Hans, Regine and Graham were initially full-time. Now, Hans and his wife, Regine, had been there since the get-go and felt some sort of entitlement, almost like they had a stake in the business. Graham Lloyd, the farmhand, begins a little later and does general duties. Hans is the boss and lets it be known although Regine, as his wife, seems to wield quite a lot of power. Later on, Regine is demoted to casual hours. Now, Paul Stewart was later employed as sales manager, and he's a pretty good guy. He seems to have done what sales managers do and travelled to various establishments to sell stock and promote the business. He had a bit of an uphill battle in his job, trying to overcome what was going on behind the owner's backs at the farm. When Jeffrey first arrived at the farm in September of 95, he wasn't welcomed by at least two of the three people working full-time on the farm. They all felt he was spying on them, which in the end, that's what he's going to be doing. Tensions were palpable from the start. There were all the mind games, there were changing locks, changing alarms, being locked out of the premises, work and notes destroyed and all this sort of palaver. This made it very hard and frustrating for Jeffrey to perform day-to-day tasks by making life just generally difficult and unpleasant. Now, with his arrival, Regine's employment hours, like I said before, were reduced from full-time to casual. Now, that's going to piss a few people off. 
Now, Hans, he was. He was unhappy about this and he felt that the regime was a more useful and worthwhile employee than Jeffrey. Now, Hans was given one week's notice of Jeffrey's six-month contract and arrival to do a feasibility study and stock evaluation. Now, any spare time Jeffrey had was to be spent doing farm duties. Now, they had a lot to hide from him. The Geiger spoke in German whenever Jeffrey was, was, was around the place. The gun he was expected to use that was owned by Hans was a horror in itself. A 1908 Harrington and Richards single-barrel brake-load shotgun that was held together with radiator clamps and was extremely dangerous. The hammer was known to go off unexpectedly, without the trigger even being touched. Now, having been brought up with guns and having gun safety instilled in him by his father, there was no way Jeffrey was going to use that gun. Now, he was very vocal about the fact and made arrangements to get another gun that he could use safely, and they used this to deter the cormorants and the marauding birds. Now, Jeffrey initially borrowed a gun from his brother in November of 95, so he's only been there a month, rather than use the faulty gun. Even at this stage, he told his brother that he feared for his life. Milham, one of the owners, purchased for Jeffrey a new 12-gauge single-pump action shotgun on the 8th of November after he complained about the other gun not being safe to use. Now, this is a really important fact further along in the story. So, as you can imagine, he initially, competently and safely, sets out on eradicating what he thinks is the problems, bird stealing and killing all the stock. He was still steadfast in refusing to use the unsafe gun. In fact, while he lived in the caravan, he slept with the new gun beside his bed. Now, that was more safety from the humans than the animals. The problem soon became apparent as to why the business was not thriving. Despite huge demand for crayfish, the figures just weren't adding up. If you put a certain number of crayfish in a pond, but you only get 30% out that you can sell to the market, well, something's going on there. Now, Jeffrey had no option but to tell the owners what was going on. He does this initially out of earshot of the three suspicious farm workers. By this time, there have been threats, very direct threats. He confirms dwindling stock numbers and cash sales not appearing in company records. Now, Paul Stewart, the sales manager, was certainly forthcoming with information. He was finding that when making cold sales calls, he was greeted with, But mate, I'm already buying stuff from you. I'm one of your customers already. Sure, they were buying Beanley's crayfish, but not legally. They were doing what's called cashies. That's giving someone cash for product and not putting it through the books, also known as black money. No points for guessing who was getting this black money. The problem was, they were purchasing through the back door from Regina and Hans. Neighbours also told Jeffrey of cash sale signs that they'd seen on the gates previously. You see, the owners are basically never there. So, with all eyes focused on the farm trio management decided to hire a private investigator, Warren Smithers. For several days, he tracked Regine, who was scurrying around happily delivering boxes of crayfish to hotels and restaurants, probably the same one the poor sales manager was trying to get a foot in the door with. 
Warren saw a receipt at one stage and he did uncover that in the previous month they had collected 6800 for this backdoor cash scheme. And don't forget, this money is in addition to whatever they were being paid with their normal wages, their benefits and, and their free lodgings, etc. It wasn't long until the situation became so fractured that Jeffrey was fearful at night sleeping at the farm. Jeffrey asked the owners if he could move out of the caravan to somewhere else due to the hostility and threats. Now, how on earth would you get any sleep? The owners immediately agreed and put him up at River Hills Caravan Park where the other casual staff were accommodated. He was only able to make phone calls to the owners when other staff weren't around. Remember, part of his duties were to report on the three workers, their movements and anything suspicious that might help in sorting out the stock inconsistencies. The owners had sent correspondence to Hans asking that he work with Jeffrey, not against him. And they they did this on more than one occasion. The trio were aware that Jeffrey was the source of the information on the cash sales and had been speaking to the owners and was giving them information on their movements. Now, one article said that Jeffrey stated to one of the workers directly that he was aware of the cash sales. Of course, they blamed Jeffrey for the loss of their very lucrative, very illegal money-earning venture. Interesting that they felt the money was theirs to take. Now, Jeffrey had stated that he was outright scared of being shot while under bird predation control by Hans or Graham Lloyd and that they would make it look like an accident. Given that many threats that Hans had made, Jeffrey had reason to be cautious. Hans had, on numerous occasions, threatened to sabotage farm pumps and equipment to management. You wonder... Really, how this guy's still there, how the owners aren't going to get rid of him. And we will find out a little bit more about that later. On February the 1st, 96, all casual workers, now that includes Hans' wife, Regine, were laid off. So the only remaining paid workers on the farm would now be Jeffrey, Hans and Graham. He's the farm worker. The owners were still looking at all options for the failing farm and had once again emailed Hans asking him to work with Jeffrey, not against, in order to keep the farm going. They outlined four possible scenarios. One of the owners, Milham, informed Hans the option they had decided upon was to continue operating the farm with Jeffrey in charge of all stock management and movement over the entire farm reporting directly to the directors. Now, this no doubt would have been something Hans was not happy to hear. What wasn't known to Hans or Graham, the remaining workers on the farm, was that Jeffrey had quietly been offered the manager's position. He and his wife, Nicole, had found a house in Carina in Brisbane, and they did move there a little later in anticipation of Jeffrey taking up this position. Now, it would have seemed that all the troubles would soon be behind them and the future was bright. Finally, the directors have had enough and issue redundancy letters to all three remaining workers on the farm, including Jeffrey, giving them until the 29th of March to vacate the premises. They wanted the trio, Hans, Regina and Graham, off the property. But the trio, (laughs) they're just not having a bar of that. Although they were dismissed... They refused to leave the property. This is crazy. 
Hans and Graham went to see the owners in a confrontational meeting. They demand overtime payments at this meeting, or probably more extra redundancy payments, that they feel they are owed. Now Hans particularly, because he and Regina have worked on the farm for so long and helped to establish it. And here again, the concerns of possible sabotage arose. After all, they know the site very well and could easily poison the water or do other malicious damage to the crayfish. After this time, there are more mind games. Jeffrey is locked out of the premises as Hans has changed the lock or the combination of both the main gate and the shed that contains Jeffrey's personal tools that he requires to perform his work at the farm. Hans says it's just a little trick when Milham rings him about it. Hans is really playing dirty. Around this time, Jeffrey and Nicole moved to Brisbane. Here, we're not really sure what the trio thought Jeffrey's plans were for the future. He may have well have told them he was caretaking the property until the owners sold it just to keep the peace. So now we move forward to March and the trio is still refusing to move from the farm. This is just crazy when you think about it. They don't own the place. The owners can't get them off there. Hans' next move was a business proposition to Milam on March the 12th. He offers to buy the farm outright for 50k or 100k over five years. A very heated argument took place around overtime owed to him. It was here that Hans admitted Regine had sold 2,500 worth of crayfish belonging to the company. Now Graham became very hostile and threatened to take it further. So you got these three ass clowns refusing to leave and just getting really upset about it. Very hostile, very threatening. They just want it to keep going on. Very dangerous situation. Now Jeffrey, he speaks to his dad Laurie that night and mentions he's scaring away birds by running around clapping his hands as he's out of shotgun cartridges. Okay, so Jeffrey arrives early on the 13th of March to the farm. This is in 1996. And yes, you guessed it, the trio are still there even after they've been dismissed, refusing to move on. Now they were supposed to leave on the 29th of March. So we're a full two weeks down the track and they're still there. Now, (laughs) in Australian history, we might call these people squatters, right? Okay, so this, as I said, is the 13th of March. Now, there's going to be a stack of things happen this day. Just going to go over the phone calls. At 7am, Jeffrey rings Millam at the company offices just to see how the meeting went with Hans and Graham the day before. At 8.30 to 9, Graham arrives at the farm. He has a coffee and a conversation with Jeffrey. At 10.09, Jeffrey again rings Millam and spoke for 9 minutes 46 seconds. He was asked to ring in Graham's movements. 11.34, Hans phones the water board to see if he can purchase the farm directly from the water board. Now, this is the company that must own the farm and it's being leased by Millam. Now, the water board say they can't do this. 11.36, after a fax arrives, advising a consignment of crayfish would need to be picked up from Brisbane Airport, Jeffrey makes arrangements to meet the delivery at 4pm. 11.38. Graham orders ice for the farm for after the crayfish are cooked. 11.40. Hans calls industrial relations. At 12 o'clock, Hans and Regina wash their dogs. 
After this, Hans says that he went to the shed, then he went out and got groceries for Regina. He said he then got a new headlight for his Hilux. Regina thinks he left around 2pm. The owner of the headlight shop said he was there between 2.30 and 3pm. At 12.20 to 12.25, Nicole phoned Jeffrey and he confirmed that they were all in the shed and arranged to meet her at 4pm because they've moved to Brisbane now. At 1.31 and 1.32, Hans calls the waterboard again. Don't know why he keeps calling them. At 1.45, Graham remembers seeing Jeffrey spraying the hatchery and spoke to him. Now, Graham also makes a vague statement to police that he corrects, that he saw the old gun being put in Jeffrey's ute, but later corrected it to maybe he did this earlier in the morning. At 1.51pm, Jeffrey called head office with information on Graham's start time and spoke to Mr Paul Stewart for 59 seconds. There's reports that at this time he quickly spoke to Paul. He said, I found something. I found a book. Someone's coming. I've got to go. And curiosity killed the cat. Now, this phone call wasn't mentioned in the original coronial inquest. So it looks like he's found their cash book. And he's got to be really careful while he's talking to this Paul guy. And he quickly tries to get off the phone. Within five to ten minutes, Jeffrey drives off to do his stuff around the farm. Then the Geigers and Graham, they say they hear two shots, with Graham remarking, what's that silly bugger up to? They all knew it only took one shot to scare off Comerance. The trio claimed that they heard two shots at 1.30pm, but they didn't know that at 1.51pm, that Jeffrey's made a phone call to Paul Stewart. They're just unaware of this. At 2.55pm, Graham was reasonably sure he could see Jeffrey while he was out using the automated pellet feeder. Now, he was thinking he should remind Jeffrey to pick up his wife at 4pm. At 3.10pm, Noel Roebuck, a neighbour of the farm, heard a gunshot that he was confident came from a shotgun. He was also confident of the time. Now, this time, if Graham was using the automatic feeder, he wouldn't have heard the gunshot. So, Graham, at 3.30, while he's doing his, these feeding rounds, notices that the red ute that Jeffrey had driven off in is parked at a very strange angle between dams 21 and 22. Now, he ran to the red ute to discover Jeffrey slumped over the ute across the seats and the barrel of the old gun he swore that he would never touch, was poking out of the ute. He tried to find a heartbeat and thought he was dead. He drove back to the shed and called the police. He then called Regina at the house to advise her what he'd found. The ute was found rolled down this embankment. Now, 11 metres away from the ute, Jeffrey's wet Akubra hat sits near a pool of blood. He had a single gunshot wound to the chest. Now, what times Hans returned from his errands, his shopping and that, and returned to, returned to the farm hasn't been established. Regina's testimony at the first inquest conflicts with Hans, as he claimed to be there when the phone call was made to police, while Regina's testimony is that he arrived after police were called. This is called not getting your story right. 
The photo of Jeffrey's body, it's, it's quite awful. And there's a lot of conjecture about how he got into that position. There's a lot of assumption. And it's sort of treated as an accident by the police. On being advised of the shooting, as soon as it basically happened at the farm, sales manager Paul Stewart vividly remembers one of the owners, Greg Millen, asking police on his first interaction, he said, I'd like you to treat this as a homicide because Brooks has been threatened. This fell on deaf ears with police. So as soon as his parents heard that he'd been found shot with the unsafe gun in the cabin with him, they immediately assumed he'd been murdered. Their son was gun smart. And his young wife, who just moved to Brisbane, received the call that her husband is dead. Now to top it off, the forensic evidence debacle is truly outstanding. No gunshot residue tests were ever done, not on the victim or on the three fellow workers on the farm. The weapon was not fingerprinted, nor any ballistic tests conducted. It wasn't until months later, if at all, that alibis were checked and witnesses interviewed. The original weapon was destroyed in 1998, which makes it impossible for any expert to comment on how the injury was inflicted or to conduct any tests. Jeffrey's t-shirt's missing, x-rays of gunshot pellets are missing, autopsy photos and their negatives are missing. This is a truly crazy case. The phone call at 151 to one of the employees, Paul Stewart, which occurred supposedly after Jeffrey was dead, was not even entered as evidence or discussed at the original inquest. The work cover investigator was not comfortable with the outcome and he returned a finding of not not accidental may involve murder. My God, even the work cover guy saying may involve murder. He was pressured into changing his finding to an open finding, but has been interviewed and admitted he believes Jeffrey was murdered. Yet with all these glaring insufficiencies, the coroner deemed the investigation thorough and delivered an open finding at this first coronial inquest on November the 2nd, 1998. But an open finding is not conclusive. It doesn't give the family any answers. It leaves everyone unsatisfied. So why then was the gun destroyed? Where did all that evidence disappear to? It's got to be somewhere or someone got rid of it. We briefly mentioned that the strong family that Jeffrey grew up in. His family have never stopped gathering evidence and asking that their son's death be looked into properly with another coronial inquest. Not for one minute did they believe that this was an accident. They sought information from experts and didn't let anyone forget their son or the lack of care that was taken in the original investigation. So over the years, there's been interviews, podcasts, many hours spent to ensure their son's death was given the attention it deserved. The house looks like a research centre with photos, plans of the farms, stat decks, various reports, test results, and so much more. And when we say over the years, we mean decades. Finally, it pays off. 22 years after Jeffrey's death, his parents and family received news 
that their efforts had paid off and that a second coronial inquest was going to be held into their son's death. It was deemed that there was sufficient new evidence to enable the trial to go to he- go ahead. Now, Jeffrey's family started a GoFundMe page to help with the legal costs when the announcement was made in 1998. It was going to be a long haul to get that coronial inquest and there was a lot of work to be done. The Brooks family set up a Facebook page, Jeffrey Brooks, Time for Justice, and have a strong following. Hans Geiger and Regina Kierderup had parted ways. Hans has remarried. The trio had all carried on with their lives. But they would be called as witnesses at the second coronial inquiry. The crayfish farm, that's gone. That's been sold. So it's interesting to note that Hans was declared a bankrupt before he worked at the crayfish farm. But after leaving, there was a fin- he was financial enough to be able to purchase a property. So you've got to think, where'd he get all the money from? We know where he got it from. Stealing crayfish. The coronial inquest ran for six days in November 2022. It had taken 26 years to reach this point. The original detective at the time, former Detective Sergeant Condon, now retired, was excluded from hearing the testimony of some witnesses. And this is a little bit weird. He admitted in hindsight that some parts of the investigation were messy. Messy? And that it could have been better handled. Jesus Christ. There was a lot of criticism regarding the way the original investigation was carried out. It was assumed that a newly happily married young man from a good Christian family had taken his own life. This was the avenue that was investigated. And because of this, other possibilities weren't looked at. Now, if other possibilities had been considered, more evidence would have been gathered. Maybe the cops were getting free crayfish at the time and didn't want to upset their little thing they had going on. The second inquest ran from the 21st to the 29th of November 22 and received a reasonable amount of media coverage. In addition to the original evidence, some new evidence was presented and witnesses were once again on the stand. On the witness stand, Hans Geiger insisted he had no problem with Jeffrey and that they were drinking coffee together and eating cookies around mid-morning when he died. He said it was a happy atmosphere. He claimed it was all an accident. He said he had no problems with Jeffrey. Now, Hans puts the death down to Jeffrey being careless with a gun. We know that's just not true. On the witness stand, his wife, Regine, said she didn't witness her then-husband having any loud fights with Jeffrey. She admitted he disagreed with Jeffrey sometimes. She said... She wasn't the boss after all and she hadn't made his life difficult. In spite of evidence to the contrary, she denied ever stealing any stock and making personal sales. But she did admit on the stand that her husband was quick to temper and was capable of violence. Now on this selling the stock thing and not giving the cash to the owners, yeah, I know how that happens. I've seen it happen and... It can be very lucrative for staff that can make cash sales without the owners being aware of these cash sales. The money just goes in the pocket. The only way you can really track it is if you sort of say, hey, we used to sell about, I don't know, 1000 bucks from the gate every month, and that's gone down to nothing. 
you can sort of wake up and go, oh, where's all that uh, cash sales from the gate? We haven't had many lately. So, but obviously that wasn't being tracked. Regine was vague in her answers and there was confusion as to Han's movements. Now, listening to the delivery of the outcome of the second coronial inquest was a bit of a nail-biter. It sounded like it was going to go the same way as the first one. The findings of the second inquest were delivered on the 13th of June, 2023, by Donald McKenzie, the coroner in Brisbane. He said that Jeffrey Lawrence Brooks died 13th of March, 1996, between 1.51pm and 3.30pm by a shotgun wound to the chest, at Beanley Crayfish Farm, Bow Desert, Beanley Road, Luscombe, Queensland. I do not agree there is sufficient evidence to find Mr. Grieger, that's Hans, and Mr. Lloyd, that's Graham, were involved. But wait for this. There is sufficient evidence to support a reasonable suspicion that Hans and Regine were involved in Jeffrey's death. Now, Graham was not considered to be involved. Now, the reasons cited were Geiger's temper, or Hans's temper. A letter in German found with a plan to run down the farm and buy it cheaply. There was a history of tension between everybody. All those phone calls that I read out. And the window of opportunity Hans had to shoot Jeffrey between 1.51pm and 3.30pm. And there were several other reasons as well. So after 26 years... The verdict had been corrected and there is some justice. All things take time and the Brooks family and their many friends and supporters will be with them as the next stage of the court process approaches. Now you can follow the Facebook page. It's called Jeffrey Brooks, Time for Justice. Now the Brooks family would no doubt appreciate your support on this home run. So there you go. To me, this looks like a bungled investigation from the start, with the police happy to wrap it up as a suicide or an accident. Now, we can hope that the reasonable suspicion finding can be turned into charges at some stage. Like I said before, when you have a small business, you really need to keep an eye on it and not rely on managers to run the place, especially when you get a husband and wife team like the Geigers. This is just asking for trouble. But when you actually find someone you can trust to keep a lookout for you, it's not expected that they're going to end up dead. The Geigers and that Graham Lloyd to an extent thought that they were owed some sort of equity in the business. Now this just shows how delusional they were. Again, if you want to keep up on this case, go to the Jeffrey Brooks Time for Justice Facebook page and see if the Department of Public Prosecutions can finally seek a better outcome for the family. Okay, so that's about it. Thanks so much to Admin for writing and researching this case for me. I know it. It took a lot of effort. I do have another one that's half done, and I hope to bring it bring it to you in the future. Now, the reason I haven't been around for six, seven months or so, I have been busy with work. I've been busy with Kate, my wife, now that she's actually in the country. She's got a PR and she's working now. Uh, I've had some bad health and I've also been restoring my car on the weekends. And that's been like three odd years in the making and it's nearly done. So my spare time has been lacking to properly research and produce the podcast. And I'm not going to sort of do a dodgy job. So I've been your host, Cambo. 
don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.